0: thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching hey, we're going to uh, jump into our uh, class here on Elijah. Uh, another great conversation tonight. Uh, thank you guys for joining us in the podcast. Um, tonight is uh, it's not quite as much on the life of Elijah because we don't really get into it until the very end. We're actually going to skip a whole chapter. You know, we've been... We land in chapter nineteen, chapter twenty. If you want to read it later on, is really kind of it's crazy. It's about a king that's going to get killed, and one prophet getting a whole lot of trouble because he won't punch another prophet, another prophet in the face, uh, you know, or he won't at least wound this other prophet, and they get mad at each other. Just all kinds of crazy stuff in twenty that has nothing to do with Elijah. Totally forgot. It's been a while since I've read some of these stories. I'm like, oh yeah, man, I forgot about that. And even tonight is kind of it's one of those stories, man. But I love to kind of get us talking. We'll do a little bit of this together. Uh, I'm going to press pause uh, so you guys can think about it as you're riding in your car, sitting at home. Uh, But if you could think of like, and I've tried to keep these light. Last week we had the whole issue kind of talking about mental illness. Tonight is another one that's a little heavier than the last two won't be nearly as heavy. Uh, But tonight we really get into God's rebuke, all right? So in in a fun way, nothing heavy, nothing deliberate, I want you to talk about like, maybe the most trouble that you got into as a kid that is appropriate to talk about, okay? Uh, the most trouble that you've been in that's appropriate to discuss publicly, all right? Let's do that. So we're gonna, we'll jump back into this. I'm sure that if we all went around and told stories, and I've got some that probably would not be appropriate for class, uh, you know, just growing up early on, um, you know, I didn't grow up in a, a Christian home, and this is no exaggeration. Because of my brothers, honestly, I think we'd had to have conversations with just us boys with the local police at least three times by the time I was in kindergarten. One time, I can't remember, um, off of there on North Main Street in Joplin, was it grandpa's? Did they have an old place here called Grandpa's back in the day that had fishing fishing stuff there? As well as tons of other stuff. We got busted one time for stealing fishing lures out of there. I didn't, my brothers did, but I remember getting called into this back room and like as a kid, like I'm pre-kindergarten, man. I just I remember that my my job for my brothers on a regular basis was back in like the early 70s. They didn't put the cigarettes like up in a lockbox. They're like where the candy is. And I still remember, man, like my job is, I'd hop my brother's handlebars. And off of 7th and Range Line, before there was a Walmart, there was some other grocery store in there. I don't know if it was a Safeway or what. Was it a consumer's? Is that what it was? All right. You remember this stuff. I remember riding up to consumers. I'd ride up my brother's handlebars. And like, sometimes you go in the front door, sometimes you can get into like this back delivery door, and my job was, I couldn't read the package, but I knew it was red and white. And some of you guys are like, well, you know it. Yeah, see, some of you guys know exactly what cigarette package that is. Uh, that's what I would always steal, is I would go in, I would steal a pack of Marlboros for my brothers, and then we'd jump on the handlebars, and we'd be gone. Uh, I remember, like, just stuff we did, man. I remember one time, dude, night, uh, we lived there, my, my mom was single, me and my brothers living in this house, and we're... I don't know what we were thinking, but they were they were doing a bunch of like ditch work or something like that, but it had snowed, and we had made snowballs and put rocks inside of them. Yeah, and we're throwing it at cars. Like, I look at myself like I was a thug, like just a bad kid, man. We're throwing rocks at cars, I remember we hit this one, and it was a nice car. I think if I remember right, my brothers told me later it was like a Corvette that we hit. We took off running as fast as we could ducked into this. It was one of the old garage doors. They, didn't, they kind of swung out. It was like a whole, the whole door moved and pivoted. If you remember those old style garage doors, we, man, we snuck in there, tried to pull that thing down. Didn't get it pulled down all the time. And the next thing you know, boom, that thing comes up. Police are involved. We get busted, all kinds of stuff. But I don't know if you've ever just been caught. Like there's no denying it. There's no dodging it. You are fully Fully out there for what you've done. Tonight is one of those stories. And it's a story, honestly, that we don't really study just a ton in Scripture. I know, I know you guys can all read. But if you're anything like me, this is probably a story you've not read in ages. It's, and I'm not presuming everyone. Somebody's like, oh, I read it last night, I read it this morning. But I'm going to assume that this is probably not a story that we read very, very often. Um, so again, we're going we're gonna to skip... Chapter 20, although, I mean, uh, although chapter 20 is, it really is kind of uh, amazing. Uh, Actually, before we do that, let's jump back to 19 real quick. Um, I told you we were going to get in a little bit more to the calling of Elisha, and I think we're going to back that off for another week, Um, but I do want to pick up just a tiny bit uh, off of chapter 19 before we move on, uh, where this calling of Elisha plays out. Before we get into 21, let let me go back to chapter 19. Um, verse 19. Chapter 19, verse 19. So it said, uh, So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Seaphat. He said was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen. And he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Um, there's a few different things that are interesting out of that. Like one, to have twelve pair of oxen shows that that this man had a lot of wealth. That's a lot of money. And then even the fact that it says, And he himself was driving the twelfth pair also shows just kind of the work ethic and the fact that this was a man who was was willing to get his hands dirty. Um, His name means God saves. Um, And so Elijah's going to put this mantle on him, it says. Elijah went up to him and he threw his cloak or his mantle on him. And this is like this, it's it's Elijah's he's transferring his prophetic power onto this man because God's told him to go search him out. He sees Elisha and he's going to transfer from Elijah to Elisha his prophetic power um, you know in, in the commitment from Elisha's evident it says this it says he left the oxen verse 20 and he ran to follow after Elijah love that left the oxen and he ran after Elijah but here's another thing that comes up it says, it says let me kiss my father and mother goodbye and then I'll come with you go back Elijah replied what have I done to you I just love that like I, whatever man go back if you want to So Elijah left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. And he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. Man, there's so much in that that before we get unpacking Elisha, I just didn't want to leave this because we won't have a chance to revisit this section again. Next week's going to get really, next two weeks are boom, boom. They're fast. But there's so many beautiful things in here. Um, Elisha's not only going to like kiss his family goodbye, but Elisha's going to kiss his whole world goodbye. What, is it, what do you think I mean by that? I think about What has he just done? His way of living. Huh? His way of living. He's destroyed it. Yeah. And none of that... He's burned it as, as a sacrifice to God. It's not like he couldn't go find wood somewhere else. It's not like, Oh, I can't find anything. I'm just going just gonna to burn my prized possessions. No, no, no. He's making a statement here. He is... You know, that, that old story, you know, where they burn the ships, you know, it, it's, there's no retreat for him. This, he's all in. Um, but I find it interesting, you know, if you look at it, he seems to be throwing a party just to tell everyone. He's not, he's not reluctant about it. He's excited. He, he's saying, man, it's that whole thing, that, you know, we, these, this old phrase, man, you can have the whole world, but just give me Jesus. This is that moment for Elisha, man. He's like, you can have everything. You can have my money. You can have my possessions, you can have my career, my family, all of it. He will abandon everything. I think it's echoed if if you look in the book of Luke, chapter nine, verse sixty one. because somebody guys look that up at your tables? You've got a volunteer at each table willing to read Luke 9, 61. Jesus tells a similar story in regard to discipleship. Okay, if you remember, he calls a man to follow him. Remember that? Somebody just go ahead and read it out loud at your table. Or somebody I want to read out loud for all of us is fine too. Okay? It's that story. He says, Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And then Jesus makes this interesting statement. You know, he says, This guy says, Man, I'm gonna follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. Luke 961. He seems to be saying almost the exact same thing that Elijah said. But instead of allowing it, like Elijah did, Elijah's like, yeah, man, whatever. Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, look at verse 62. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. Very, very different approach. Elijah's like, yeah, man, whatever. Whatever you want to do, go ahead. But Jesus will say here, no, 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 you don't put your hand on the plow and look back. You're not worthy. You're not fit to be a disciple. Why doesn't Jesus grant the request? Elijah grants the request. Yeah, go back and tell your family goodbye. Why won't Jesus grant the request? I don't know, but it reminds me of the scripture that says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways Mm -hmm. are not your ways. Yeah, that's a great one. It's a great way to look at it. As you think about it, like, man, I want to know. He knows his heart. That's a great point. Jesus probably doesn't know this guy's heart. Maybe he's looking at this guy just totally as an individual. Man, nope, you can't. Maybe Elisha's different. I don't know. Anybody else? My, my Bible says backsliding hmm. on that. On, on, talking about the, the one from Luke? Yeah, yeah? verse 62. Yeah. I, I think part of it is the call, the call of, of Elijah to Elisha. We look at that call like, man, what's it, what would it be like for a prophet to throw his mantle over, over you and ask you to become his apprentice? Like, that would be amazing. Like, that would be awesome. And you think, man, if, if I had a prophet like Elijah show up at my doorstep and throw his mantle over you and say, man, you are now going to be my apprentice, whew, you'd be blown away, man. Like, what in the world just happened, man? I'll sell my house. I'll sell everything. You bet. Let's go. Can I, can I say goodbye to my family? Can I? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. But how much more powerful is the call of Jesus on us? Because it's not a call to be a prophet. It's a call to be a son. It's called to be a daughter of the king. And Jesus' call in our life is so superior than the call that Elisha is getting that it demands our immediate obedience. No delayed obedience. I tell my kids often, I said, man, delayed obedience is disobedience. When I tell you to do something and you won't do it, that's disobedience, man. You can't just... And so I think of the call of Jesus when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I think when Jesus makes a statement of hey man, if, if you're going to put your hand on the plow, then you can't be my disciple. You can't follow me. That means you're, you're going to constantly delay. It's an interesting text to, to compare. Um, in 2 Kings 2, verse 12, there's going to be a really interesting phrase where Elisha is going to call Elijah this term father. But the intimacy these guys are going to share, the friendship, the depth of relationship, it's powerful. You know, Elisha's like this intern He's going to do, like, you're going to least see another point. In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 11, he will literally wash Elijah's hands. I mean, this, he's going to do menial tasks. He's going to do big tasks. Th- this relationship is incredibly close between these two guys. But I love the fact that as we start getting into the story of Naboth, that's going to be important. Let's go ahead and jump into this uh, this text again um, tonight's text. We'll, we'll come back to Elisha tomorrow night. I mean, tomorrow night next week. But let's. Ju- I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to abandon that stuff because Elisha doesn't get brought up at all. So chapter twenty, we're going to punt on that. It's important. It's great. It's awesome. Uh, there's some weird stuff in that chapter that I don't really know what to do with. Uh, there, it's it's a little bit bizarre, but there you go. Um, yeah, there's this, this moment where a prophet tells another prophet to hit him. And uh, so the prophet says, because you've not obeyed the Lord. Um, oh, wait, wait. But, verse 35. We'll just talk about this. is weird. It says, by the word of the Lord, one of the sons of the prophet said to his companion, strike with your weapon, but the man refused. So the prophet said, because you've not obeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave, a lion will kill you. And after the man went away, a lion found him and killed him. Just because he wouldn't hit the guy. It's like, what? But later on, it makes sense. It's just one of those stories in the Bible that make you, make you kind of cock your head like, huh, you wouldn't hit him? And he gets killed for it? Like, what? Okay, that that that's awful. That's awful rough, man. But all right, there you go. Um, and you'll see later on why he does that. It makes it makes sense later on. But let's get into Naboth, all right? So here we go. Chapter 21. I'm going to read a lot of this because I think it's fascinating and it's probably a story I haven't read in a while. So sometime later... There was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel. And if you remember, Jezreel is where Ahab has his summer home. Okay? He's a rich man. He's got a summer home. That's where it's at. It goes on. It says, um, It was close to place Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it's close to my palace. In exchange... I will give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. Now listen, folks. Right now, some of you are like, sounds like a fair deal to me. I have got to get into this whole issue of a vegetable garden and why this is a bad deal. Uh, th- th- this, it, it's not going to make sense when you hear Naboth's response, but it's, it's, it's appropriate. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. What he literally means, like, the Lord forbids, we'll, we'll get into that later. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said, "I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers." He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. This is the king of Israel, mind you. His wife, Jezreel, came in and asked him, "Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat?" He answered her like a two-year-old. No, it doesn't say that. Sorry. He answered her. Because I said to Naboth, the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you some, you know, another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. That's not what he said. Jezebel, his wife, said, well, is this how you act as a king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. She wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's cities with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him. And have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. And take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's cities did as Jezebel directed in the letters that she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast. They seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him, and they brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has was God and cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city, and they stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezreel or Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down and meet Ahab king of Israel, who, lives, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to bring disaster on you. I'll consume your descendants and cut off every Ahab from every last male in Israel, slave or free. I'll make you a house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, son of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you provoke me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also, concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab uh, who die in the city, and birds and the birds of the air will feed on those in the country. There will never be a man like Ahab who sold himself to do who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Urged on by Jezebel's life, he behaved in the vilest manner, going after idols like the Amorites. The Lord drove before out of Israel. When he had heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, sackcloth and, ashed, and fasted. Sorry, he lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. When the, Lord, when the word of the Lord came to light at the Tishbite, have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself? Um, he says, I will not bring disaster in this day, but I will, bring it on the day, uh, I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Okay, one. How many of you guys have never really heard that story before? Anybody like that's kind of a first time you've ever heard that one? Okay, a few of you, right? Several of you, yeah. It's just not one we go to very often. That's why I thought, man, I'm going to read this. It's a pretty crazy story to unpack. Um, You've got massive injustice coming here. And there's all kinds of, of stories we could go back to, we'll reference these, we'll get into a little bit longer. You know, if you know the story of it's almost got a little bit of a David and Bathsheba moment to it, and Uriah the Hittite, if you remember that, where he gets confronted by a prophet because he sees Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, she's she's bathing, man, he's gotta have her, so he sends for her. He takes what doesn't belong to him, calls Uriah back from the battle lines, tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. Uriah's like, how can I do this? My men are out fighting. Uriah's like, no, I can't do this. Well, the next thing you know, he says, fine, move David to the front of the battle lines and have him killed. And they do exactly what David says. But there's a different posture that happens in David's life. And this prophet Nathan comes in and he says, hey, man, let me tell you the story about this guy and these little sheep he's got and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, man, David, you're the man. David, you're the guy. This pattern, it's not just Naboth and it's not just David, it's not just kings. We live in a culture where it's easy to take advantage of people. We live in a culture of people like, man, honestly, you go into to India, the amount of land grabbing that still takes place in that country, and honestly, even stuff that can happen here in our own country, you know, even, even just wounds and scars in our history and in our past. You know, and, and no doubt the, the sins of nations visit on for generations. Whether that's Israel, whether that's India, or whether that's here, that, that God hates injustice in all of its forms and fashions. Here's one of them. God hates what this king has done. He's had enough, enough. And we're going to unpack this a little bit. We're going to dive into it, um, but I want to walk through a few things about this, through, through this text. Um, it reminds me a little bit. Uh, in the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, let's talk about Naboth first of all. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, let's go there real quick. Matthew chapter 5, um, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. Ugh, my hands are turning too fast. Here's what it says 11 to 12. It says, Blessed are you when people insult you, you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then Jesus told a parable about a vineyard. You remember that? It's kind of a similar story. If you get your Bibles, look at, at, uh, at Matthew chapter 21. Turn a few pages back to Matthew 21. There's some similar stuff that plays out in these two stories. 21 verses 33. We'll start there. Here's how the story plays out. A different story about a vineyard. It says, listen to the parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rid of the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When harvest time approached, he sent the servants to the tenants to collect its fruit. And the tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned the third. And he sent other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. The last of all... He sent a son to them. And they're going to respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to one there, Here's the heir. Come, let's kill him. Let's take his inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Love that line. They replied, and he'll rent the vineyard to other, other tenants who will give him a share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, Have you never, never read in the scripture the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? Uh, the Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who produce its fruit. Um, so, the story of the vineyard, it's, it, it even carries on some of that motif. Um, in that moment, you realize that Jesus is the owner of that true vineyard. In Naboth's eyes, God is the owner of this vineyard. So I want to get into some really... Ah, before we get into that, let's talk about Ahab for just a little bit. Um, there's some real problems with Ahab's offer. From just a sheer logistic standpoint, we're going to look at this from our American mindset. Okay, So be fully American right now. Sounds like a fair deal, doesn't it? Cain wants a vineyard, make a great vegetable garden. He says, listen, I'll give you a... I think he even says a better one. Like, I'm going to give you a better piece of property, or I'll pay you for it. And he might have even paid through the nose. Like, if somebody came to you and they wanted your property, and they said, you know, hey man, I'll pay you a good good rate for it, and you know, man, I'll I'll even give you a better piece of property. Now, you may say, nope, this place is special to me, it matters to me, it may be sentimental value. Uh, My wife knows that unless it is my family, my character, like my integrity, my relation with the Lord... Everything else, unless it's nailed down, can be sold. Like, I, there is not much I hold on to that I wouldn't sell in a heartbeat. It's just, like, we kind of live with the attitude of everything we have is always for sale. It's just kind of, and it wears her out, to be honest with you. Like, I don't mind. You want, yeah, I'll sell it, whatever. I just want to sell my family, my integrity, you know, you know, my relationship with my family. But everything else, like, peace out, see you later. It can, all, it can all be sold, all be gone. I don't mind. That's not what this situation is. This is different. In fact, it's important that we understand this. Um, let's look, first of all. This proposal would have been really significant for an Israelite. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, uh, let's look at verses 10 and 12. All right? I'm going to go at this slowly because we need to camp out. I need to unpack why this is such a bad deal. Deuteronomy 11, let's look at this. It's not just it's a bad deal, it's wrong. All right? it's, but it's going to take me a little bit of time for you to wrap your head around this one little point. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 10 through 12. So... Here's the way it's playing out. He's getting ready to send these people into the promised land. And he says this. He says, The land you're entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt. Okay, listen. It's not like the land of Egypt. Where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. All right? And you're like, where is he going with this? But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of... "...is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end." What God has always set this promised land up to be is a place where He's going to sustain His people. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land where the resources are always available. It's a land where God's going to provide for them, where God's going to sustain them. So when he comes back in, he says, I want to plant a vegetable garden. Basically, what he's trying to tie back here, what the writer's tying us back to is all the way back to Egypt right now. This is bigger than your grandma's vegetable garden when you just grew some corn and you had some tomato plants out there and you grew a few cucumbers and some broccoli. This is a statement of a king saying, I want a vegetable garden. I want a land like Egypt. And God's saying, no, 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 no. I told you, I'm, I'm taking you out of a land like that, and I'm taking you to a new land. This is a throwback to Egypt. This is a throwback to oppression. That anybody, any good Israelite would have known exactly what was being said right there. Because that, these are formidable words that God's saying in Deuteronomy as he's ready to move them out. He's like, you remember all those vegetable gardens We had to walk on foot and in Egypt? You had to water them. You had to take care of them. He goes, I'm taking you to a place where you don't have to worry about vegetable gardens. You don't have to worry about all that anymore. I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to take care of you. I want to take you to a promised land. This, this is a big deal. But it's not just going back. There's more to it than that. There's also a problem with just the offer. It would have been wrong for him to take it. So I've got to find this in my notes so I remember how this, how this plays out. Uh, where is this? Um, okay, so Naboth knew the Old Testament. He understood the Old Testament principle of land. So land ownership would have been very different than what we knew today. It would have been given to a tribe. So I was talking to a friend of mine that, that does a lot of work up in Alaska, and she was trying to explain some of the tribal principles of land ownership. We kind of understand that vaguely, except for we would give people land and then take that land away. Uh, you know, We kind of get a, a, a concept of that. But land ownership has changed quite a bit within our culture, within our country. But here, land ownership was actually a designated gift from God that was given to your tribe and it was given to your family. So let, let me walk you through this. All right, first of all, um, the land ultimately belonged to God who gave it to families. That God brought Israel the land fulfilling his promise to Abraham in Genesis 17.8 where he said he would drive out the previous residents through Joshua that he allocate, he would give this inheritance to all these tribes. So these tribes are going to get this lot of land. Naboth knew that selling the land was not an option and that established law kept land in the families. Kings were not meant to amass massive amounts of land. Okay? In fact, You know, Samuel warned us of that when they all want a king. He's like, now, wait a second. Do you know what a king's going to do? Do you know what a king's going to do to your sons? Do you know what a king's going to do to your taxes? Do you know what a king's going to do to your land? That's what's playing out right now. It was wrong for the king to try to come and take this. Uh, And in fact, if you look at you can find it in Leviticus 25. And even, let's look at Numbers 36. We'll look at this one particular scripture because I I don't want to bog you down. This stuff is interesting to me. It may not be interesting to you. Numbers 36, it says this, verse 7 through 9. Uh, Where is this at? Uh, It says, No inheritance in Israel is to pass from tribe to tribe, for every Israelite shall keep the tribal land inherited from his forefathers. Every daughter who inherits land in any Israelite tribe must marry someone in her father's tribal clan so that every Israelite will, will possess the inheritance of his fathers. No inheritance may pass from tribe to tribe, for each Israelite tribe is to keep the land it inherits. Does that frame it just a little different for you when Naboth says, the Lord forbid? Do you understand that? He can't do this deal. Naboth would have been wrong to take this deal. What Ahab is asking him to do is against God's law. For some reason, and I don't understand all the different reasons for it, God had defined the boundaries, had defined the land that each tribe was going to get. He had that, it was set out for a reason. And God did not want tribes hoarding and taking to the tribes. He didn't want a king. He had no plan for a king originally. God's plan was not for a king, but he surely would not have wanted a king to come in and start like, you know, through a, oh, what's the term we use here in the United States? We wanted to just take over a piece of land. Uh, 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 There's the term for it. What is it? Eminent domain. Yeah, imminent domain. It's not a kind of thing where a king can show up with imminent domain and say, well, this is mine now. So one, it's wrong for Ahab to do it. But I want you to read what Nabal, how this plays out a little bit more. Go back to 1 Kings, where he says, uh, he makes this statement. He says, Ahab, uh, wrong place, wrong verse, sorry. Uh, He said, Ahab said to him, verse 2, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. Go back to Numbers, what we just read. He can't make the deal. It's against God's law. So when he says, but Nabal replied... Can you imagine the fear in his voice when he says this? Like, we think he's just telling him off because it's like, well, you know, maybe there's, oh, I don't king, you can't have my land. No, 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 no. It's not like him just bowing up. It's not like he's, he's trying to pick a fight with Ahab. He's literally saying the words like, the Lord forbid. The Lord forbids that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Ahab knew the law. Naboth cannot, under God's law, make this deal. Do you understand this now? Again, none of this is going to matter. None of this is going to shape you as a disciple, probably. I don't have some big spiritual principle to draw out of it, other than the fact that this deal that Ahab's asking for is downright wrong and against God's law. All right, that intrigues me. There's a lot more i going to talk about that, but I think I made the point. So, people, moving on now. Uh, what else do you want to hit on this that I forgot to hit? Um... So, Am's going to fall into the sin of covetousness. You know, that's the sin you commit when you desire something that is not your own. And man, that can be a house. It can be another man. It can be another woman. It can be a car. It can be somebody else's bank account. I mean, there's all kinds of ways. But he falls into this age-old thing that we all understand, and that's covetousness. And I would imagine each and every one of us deal with that at some point in time, man. We see something that somebody else would have. And it always starts off with that, man, that'd be nice. You know what I mean? It always starts with that innocent little seed that gets planted like, man, I wish we had. And you just kind of start looking at what they have versus what you have and you wish you had. And, you know, maybe we could have if we just did this. And It can take people to some really, really, really dark roads. I mean, this guy has so much. He's king of Israel he wants this one man small parcel of property as if it's not enough I think it reminds us of what James says if you get looking look at James chapter 1 uh, verse 15 I think this is this is me at times and I bet it's you and we know it's Ahab right now James 1 15 it says this uh, he says then after the desire after the desire is conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. That is the story of Ahab, man. I was talking to a young man about uh, a sin issue he's got with pornography right now. And in the conversation with this, with this young man, I just told him, I was like, bro, you need to understand that the only satisfaction, it, it, it will only be happy when it consumes you and destroys you. That's the only place. That's the only way that this sin gets any joy. Like just dabbling in it It'll never be enough. There's an old movie, and probably most of you have never seen it. And if you haven't seen it, man, good news for you, because it's terrible. Uh, I went on a date one time with this girl in high school, and she took me to this movie, and I hated it. Uh, One, it was a musical. And why you take a high school boy to watch a movie that's a musical, I do not know. Uh, It was Little Shop of Horrors. Have you ever seen that? Is it it Richard Pryor that's in it? I don't know who's in it. Have you ever seen Little Shop of Horrors? Okay, it's not nearly as scary as it sounds. The premise of this movie is so bizarre. I remember sitting next to her and going, Man, she's so pretty, but she picks, picks such bad movies. That's what I thought. And I watch this movie like, I don't know if I can like you now. Because this movie was like, I, I hated it. But the premise of the movie, from what I remember, is this guy gets this plant. And I don't know what happens. It looks, From my memory, it looks like a Venus flytrap. But I was a sophomore in high school. And I'm like almost 50 now. So it's been a while. But he gets this plant, it's like a, like a Venus flytrap, and somehow it gets this little drop of blood in it. And the plant starts talking to him, and it says, feed me, Seymour. And I think that's the guy's name in it. And it kind of freaks him out. And somebody goes, if you've seen the movie, you can probably like, no, you got it all wrong. Yeah, it plays out this way. But <laughs> I'm dealing with my sophomore mind right now. I've never watched it again. But all of a sudden, he can't, every time he feeds this plant like a little bit of blood, it grows. And it wants more. Until finally, man, this plant just keeps growing and it starts taking over his whole house. And he keeps having to feed it more and more. And it just says, man, feed me, see more, feed me, see more, feed me, see more. And, and for me, as much as I hated that movie as a sophomore in high school, I'd never forgotten it because it reminds me so much of my and possibly of your sinful nature. Like, once it just gets a taste, man, it's like, feed me, feed me, just a little bit more. Like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to feed you. And the next thing you know, it's like, oh, crud, I fed it. And man, it's it's it never. It's desire, it's appetite. It is insatiable. You can never stop it. You can never give it enough. You can never feed it enough. You can never fuel it enough. It always wants more. It's never satisfied. It's never done. That's why I talked to this young man about pornography. Is like you need to understand. There's no middle ground. Either you're consumed totally and irrevocably done and gone and torn apart by this, or you have to stop. Like, you can't live in this gray area because this, this sin will devour you. It's a raging lion seeking to utterly, totally destroy you. It wants to take you out. And that's what James, James writes. He says, man, it's, it's that thought, you know, that kind of gives birth to desire, that desire gives birth to sin, and the next thing you know, that sin gives birth to death. And and some of you are like, yeah, I've been there. I've i I've, I've lived that. I've I've walked that road. Or I'm walking that road now. This is what happens in Naboth, man. He's had an opportunity to see God send fire and destroy 850 prophets. He's had the opportunity to see God send rain to bring life back to his land. And what he wouldn't have given for three and a half years for a drop of rain, man. Now he's talking about planting vegetable gardens. <laughs> for three and a half years he couldn't grow a vegetable. For three and a half years, he couldn't get a drop of rain, and now he's talking about getting more land and expanding and planting a garden. And expand, you know. I'm like, neighbor, do you understand what it is you got? Like, you're set. Like God has amazingly blessed you. Like, do you understand how good this is? How blessed you are. Wasn't enough, man. That covetousness is going to consume him. I think we've got to be on watch for greed in our own hearts. We're warned. Uh, Luke, I'm I, I going through every single scripture, I don't have time, uh, but I'm going to do them anyway. Luke chapter 12, look at there real quick. A few scriptures and we'll move on. I'm kind of bogged down in this. I have a ton to cover tonight. Luke 12:15. 15, uh, Jesus says, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If you're taking notes, you can look down, like in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus talks about it in, the, in, in Mark chapter 4 that one of the reasons why, remember when they talk about the, the, the parable of the sower and they're throwing out the seeds? Remember that story? And some of it falls in this hard soil. You know, some of it gets choked out. Remember that story? Part of the reason why, why the, 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 the seed gets choked out was he talks about the seduction of wealth and the desire for other things. He says, therefore, guard your heart, put sin to death. Man, the advice is to give generously. Here's what I'd say. We'll, we'll leave this. Greed is idolatry. Greed is deadly. Greed is consuming. Jesus warns out the fact that his gospel can be choked out of our lives because we live with a sensational appetite for more. And we just can't stop. We'll rack up our credit cards. And it's not just, it's not just debt It will will enter into really unhealthy relationships, unhealthy addictions, because we just can't stop, and enough is never enough. So, enough of that. Let's move on. So, Naboth, I told you, he knows the the Old Testament principle. He knows the land. He knows about Leviticus 25. He knows about about Numbers 36 to 7 through 9. But it didn't matter to him. Uh, And in fact, if you want to go to it later on, if you look at Isaiah 5.8, uh, and in Micah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, um, you know, uh, you, you'll see some of the same things on property laws. Uh, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 45, verse 8, um, you know, he's going he's gonna to blast rulers that oppress, but wouldn't allow the rightful people to possess the land uh, according to their tribes. So even though we might understand it here, it's a big deal. And, and uh, you know, when he says, the Lord forbid, he's just like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't take this temptation. And think of it from Naboth's perspective. Let me think. Let's look at it from Naboth's perspective. The Lord forbid, but, but, but honestly, cut the guy some credit. What does he stand to gain out of this? First of all, his land butts up to you know Ahab. Who wants to live in that neighborhood? Okay? He's got a chance to leave the neighborhood. All right? It literally says, he, Nahab, And I, I'm going to believe Ahab may be telling the truth here. There's no reason that we think he's not. He says he's going to give him a better piece of property. Like, man, you can actually move up in this deal. Like, you can go from, you know, 15 acres of rock, rocky ground to like 150 acres of fertile soil, you know, uh, neighborhood. This is going to be a good deal. Or, man, Naboth, you could pocket some money now. Maybe you get out of farming. Maybe you could do something different in a new line of work where it's not so hard, not so backbreaking. Maybe there's, you know, hey, take a cruise, you know, go on a trip, go on a trip. But here's Naboth, man. He just, he just can't bring himself to do it. It's not worth it. It's not worth taking the money. It's not worth taking something better if he knows it's against God's will. Man, how many times in our lives if we could just slow down and ask that question, God, is it your will for me to buy this? Is it your will for me to go here? Is it your will for me to do this? Is it it your will? Is it in my best interest as your disciple to invest in this or to invest in that? I I think we need to give Naboth some credit. What he's walking away from is tough. You remember when God tells Elijah uh, that he had 7,000 who not bowed a a knee or kissed Baal? Remember he says that? I think Naboth is one of those 7,000. This is a righteous man here. He's got a little vineyard that he cherishes in. It's been in his family for years. And he won't give it up for money. And it's not because he's some principal man. This is this, is my, you know, my land, but my family for generations. Even more than that, it's because God will forget it. So Aeop it's like a spoiled little two-year-old who can't get his trinket, you know. Uh, He's probably done all the things that kings do. He's had women brought into him. He's had musicians brought into him. He's had gourmet meals cooked for him, and none of it, none of it can make him happy. None of it can can soothe his you know pouting little soul, Uh, you know. And he's just he's just sulking. He's just being a child right now. And I think it exposes something more than greed. I think it's going to expose the fact that his heart is corrupt. Um, that he doesn't trust in the provision of God. Um, so now he's going go to go to bed without eating supper. He's going to throw a fit, cry a little bit. You know, he should have been out caring for the nation. He should have been out leading the people toward the glory of God. But instead he's crying in his bedroom over a little vineyard. Uh, you know, how small of a king he is, how small of a vision. I mean, you're the king of Israel for crying out loud. And you can't get a little vineyard, you little crybaby. I'm like, come on, man come on I mean Ahab he's just completely self-centered and then you've got Jezebel who's an utter slime bag Uh, I feel I think that's the Greek term for her is slime bag Uh, she's just horrible you know Ahab does not report the story correctly I mean look what he says his wife comes in why are you sullen why won't you eat he answered her because it said the neighbor of the Jezreelite sell me your vineyard I prefer I'll give you another vineyard this place but he said I will not give you my vineyard that's not what he said like you're not even telling the truth you know, that, no, you're misrepresenting the facts right now. He said the Lord forbids him from doing it. He's like, i would I, I be living contrary to what God's asked me to do. Like, I, I can't, I literally can't do this. Um, and I'm not just trying to, this is not a male versus female issue. Uh, I, instead of picking on, you know, the female side of, of Jezebel, let me pick on the weak nature nature of men at times. Uh, and, and i 'm not trying to get into an, an issue of men and women here and, and drawing distinctions here but but here 's another moment you 've got this entire moment in in the uh, you know early on in Genesis when you know people blast Eve, you know but honestly where where is it where 's Adam in this like Adam step up, Adam say no you, you know you weak little coward, like come on, you could have been a great leader in that moment, you could have been a source of encouragement. And, and I'll be the first one to say, it's not a man versus woman issue because half the time in my house, it's my wife saying, Jason, think through this. Yeah, you're right, babe. You're right. Okay, I got you. You know, But here's a moment where you've got a really weak leader. He's the king for crying out loud. The king. And he's nothing but weak sauce. He can't lead in his own home. He can't even show leadership right now because he just can't make a decision that's healthy. He can't, he can't stand up to her in this moment. And again... You can't extrapolate Ahab across all men any more than you can Jezebel against all women. Okay, I think that's a really unhealthy tendency for us to take here. But this reminds me so much of Genesis 1. I just draw that distinction. Moving on. Um, so, I think you've got to remember that, man, if, if God gives you influence, whether it be influence in a marriage or influence in a kingdom, how do you use that influence? Here's Jezebel where she had so much opportunity to have an influence for good. I mean, easily, she could have looked at him and said, Ahab, hey, you crybaby, you're king. You've got plenty of land. Come on, what in the world are you doing What in this poor guy's land? She had opportunities to, to be this force for good, but she's, she's a slime bag. Um, huh? Yeah. Uh, I love what it says uh, in Proverbs chapter 31. Let's look at that real quick. Proverbs 31. Uh, where are we at? Proverbs chapter 31, and we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. It's, it's this great text where it says, He says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And Jezebel does anything but that. Shouldn't do that at all. So the plan gets laid out. She writes these letters in Ahab's name, which she had no right to do. We all know that. She's putting his stamp on there uh, like she can't do that. And then she sends them to the elders of the city and the nobles who live. Now, so quickly, we're going to want to get on to these two scoundrels here in a second. We'll talk about them. But I think, like, so often when I read this story, I want to jump in and look at these. Who are the two losers that accused him? Understand, these guys, are, they, they are nothing but playing a part. The nobles and the elders are who we got to look at first. These guys, they're a bad deal, man. I think you've got to realize that this is not just the two worthless men and Jezebel. She's actually brought in the leaders of the city to cooperate with her. And she has corrupted everything. Everything is now corrupt. Um, There's no justice or integrity that can be found. You know, this administration is absolutely sinful. You know, just gross. Now, again, I'm not trying to go into politics, but are there ever times where you wonder if politicians lie? there ever moments if you wonder if maybe, maybe just by chance that they conjure up and make up stories about other people that aren't necessarily true, and then they start going along with it? This is age-old garbage we're dealing with. This is politics, baby. That's what this is, pure and simple. Jezebel's playing politics. You know, she is literally speaker of the house, of Ahab's house. And she is using her political clout to make things happen. And think about it, man. She's been killing a lot of people. She's taken a lot of, you know remember back when I was a kid, they don't do this anymore. You don't see it. Like, when I remember when I was a kid, you'd drive down the old country roads and people would put, like, the catfish heads on fence posts. Does that show how redneck I am? Somebody listening to this podcast is like, I can imagine somebody from Vegas or California listening to this going, what? Rewind. Some of you guys are shaking your heads like, yeah, I remember that stuff. They still do. They still do? Yeah, still do. Uh, you still know, It's kind of like this trophy that you put out there, you know, when you, you caught this huge fish. And, and man, basically, she's doing you know, almost the equivalent with the prophets of God. She's been taking their heads off and killing them. I'm not saying she's putting on posts, but she has been, she's been posting it all over about the amount of people she's killed. And I'm sure these nobles at some point are probably afraid for their lives. It's Jezebel you're messing with, man. You don't mess with Jezebel. Even Elijah ran from her. But we all know that saying that, you know, you can't, you can't live in a culture where good people stand by and do nothing. And these guys are called nobles and elders. And here you have good people standing by and doing nothing. So what's that mean in a culture when we align with a political force? Maybe Jezebel happened to do more good than evil. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe she did some good things for the culture. I don't know. We don't hear any of those kind of things. I'll just assume she doesn't. But is it ever tempting to align with a political force that you know is doing wrong? just because you don't really know who else to align with? Do we ever find ourselves aligning ourselves with a party or with a person because, man, I I mean, the best option we have right now, don't know what else we'd do, don't know who else we'd follow, don't know who else we'd we'd support. I mean, who else the noble's going to support? I mean, he's King Ahab and his wife, after all. And we, We know that phrase, man, that what happens when good people stand by and do Nothing when even the nobles go along with it, even the elders go along with it, and everybody knows this is wrong. They're going to sign his death mark. They're going to sign his death note on behalf of this messed up slime bag of a woman. I think the reason they feel, maybe they complied with her wishes, I think it's probably out of fear. Maybe it's out of consequences for refusing her. I think we can understand their fear, but fear never justifies condoning their action. What they're doing is wrong here, and fear doesn't justify that. It reminds me of Jesus. If you get your Bibles, you can look um, in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, we'll go there real quick. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 Peter is addressing the crowd, and uh, in verse 23, or verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. He says, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. They're going to do the same thing, same thing to Naboth. Naboth is an innocent man, he's a righteous man. Trying his best to follow God's will, and wicked men are going to put him to death. Similar, similar story. I think we've got to be. I think we have to be aware of our passivity. We have to be aware of our passivity in moments of darkness, when good men and good women stand by and do nothing, when we allow our politicians to continue pushing out lies and we don't hold them in check. When we continue to align with them because not everything they do is bad. We continue to choose them because, well, it's better than the alternative. Well, I'm sure there's somebody in the world worse than Jezebel. Probably was. But at some point, I think you have to step back and say, I don't care what party you affiliate with. At some point, honestly, I'm not trying to draw a distinction here. They're all corrupt. At some point, you have to stand up and say, no, no, no. As a believer, my alliance is with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, not with, with donkeys and elephants here. Okay? My alliance is not with the house of Jezebel, the house of Ahab, but with the house of God. And what you're doing to people, whether those people live in this country or another country, whether they are Jew, whether they're Gentile, according to the Old Testament, or whether they are American or they're not American, it's never okay for us to treat people with injustice. And I would say that the injustice that these political political leaders are going to show to Naboth, that's why God is going to bring a harsh judgment on them. Don't align with this kind of people. Don't align with them. Don't justify it. The nobles justified it. The elders justified the alliance. They had all kinds of reasons why they could say, well, but Jason, now wait a second. You know this about Jezebel. Jezebel once built a school in our town. Or Jezebel did this. Or Jezebel donated money here. Or Jezebel, you know, she's not doing this over here because if so-and-so was in power, they'd be, they'd be doing this. No. We don't, we don't pick those paddles. We don't, we, don't, we don't get involved in that. Our standard is God's standard. And we have to hold that line. I just use this phrase, whatever you begin to tolerate, you'll eventually come to accept. Whatever you begin to tolerate, you'll eventually come to accept. But we have a political discourse happening in our country right now that I could never have dreamed. And granted, it's probably not as bad as it was in 1968. It may not be as bad, but it's still the worst I've seen in my lifetime. It was as bad as i in my, in my 50 years. I mean, I, don't, I, I think some of you guys who were alive in 1968 could probably make a case for it might have been worse then. You really probably could. That, that would be a very difficult thing. It might have been worse at, at that point in time. Even the way our leaders handled Maybe not, though. I don't know. There were times probably in the 1950s that could have been worse in terms of injustice. They probably were worse. I'm just saying in my 50 years, this is about as messy as it's become. For me, this is this is again. I'll be fifty in January. I'm like this is as messy as I can remember. Again, I wasn't alive in the '50s. I wasn't alive, honestly, when things like the Trail of Tears were taking place. I wasn't alive when some things going on with black whites was taking place. I did. I missed all of that. I'm born in 1969. There's a lot that I missed. I missed some of the the stuff going on in college campuses in 1968 and all the stuff that was breaking loose. Like I missed a lot of that. But from, from 1969 to like 2018, coming to 19, this is about as messy as, as I remember. And I, all I say to myself is, man, Jason, when you begin to tolerate, you eventually come to accept. And I don't tolerate this. It's why I've left Facebook. It's why I've left Twitter. It's like I'm, I'm looking at social discourse saying, I'm, I'm not going to vote for you because you're somehow the lesser of two evils. That's not what I do. I don't vote for the lesser of two evils. Like That's just not how my heart works. It's like, am I going to choose Jezebel or Ahab? They're both a mess. like, no. And I guess I would just call us back to a different type of principle. You're like, well, Jason, that's never going to work. It's never going to work as long as we continue to tolerate the garbage we see every day as believers. It's just, it's not. And I would say this, don't complain about what you permit. That's another key phrase. Like, you can't complain about what you permit. And man, you know, that's... if if whether man, donkeys or are, 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 are elephants. I don't I don't give a rip. Some of you guys are like, well, I know exactly where you stand. You probably don't know where you stand. But honestly, either way, they're both a mess right now. They're both a mess. I, I'd say, man, let's let's do our best to choose people that lie most of Christ's kingdom. And let's let's don't find ourselves in places we're defending systems that we know are corrupt. I think that's probably the biggest part. Stop defending systems you know are corrupt. I know we need to vote. I believe in that. I know we need to to advocate. I believe in that. But please don't find yourself in a public space defending systems you know are corrupt. Because in that case, you're no worse than an elder or a noble. When you're allowing systems to perpetuate injustice and you're somehow defending them. We look at this story and say, how could they do that? Well, look at our society. Do our nobles and justice perpetuate injustice at times? Do they? Yes, they do. Of course they do. How can we stand by and align with that? Okay? Again, I'm not saying you can't vote. I'll vote. am not saying set out and don't do anything at all. But I'm saying be careful about what you defend. We'll leave it at that. Let's move on. A um, few more things. Sorry. I had my chance to go off, and I did. Um, it's interesting here that a day of prayer, you're going to see this. She's going to write, uh, proclaim a day of fasting. She's going to proclaim a day of prayer on the day she orders a murder. Again, man, this lady has no discretion. Her evil knows no bounds. She, <laughs> I'm like, proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Like, I wonder what that invitation was like. Uh, it's a fun story. How much time do I have, I have time for this story? I got time for a quick story. I'll make this quick. Um, I snuck into the Oscars one time. It's kind of a funny story. Uh, yes, so the backstory on it is the Oscars were technically over. Uh, I was with this guy named Ab Castle. I just moved to California, and the red carpets out there. We're watching like Tom Cruise and Bette Midler and all these people come out on the red carpet. You're, like everybody's cheering and screaming and yelling. And I've had this thing where he would call me up and like, we both graduated from Ozark. He was at one church in California. I was at another church in California. Every so often he called me up and like, hey man, let's go, let's go. I was like, all right. All right. Uh, I remember one time, the funniest story is I went to the, he, t- he taught me to go to the MTV Music Awards. I'll get back to the Oscars in a second. Taught me into going to go into the MTV Music Awards. And it's back when like Cindy Crawford was like this crazy supermodel. And I remember she came walking out and I was like, wow, she's pretty. Like I'm single at the time, getting ready to get engaged. And I'd like never been that close to like a supermodel. And I'm just telling you, man, think what you want. I'm 22 years old going, wow, <laughs> or 21, like good grief, man. I was like... This is not Joplin. I'm like, wow. I was looking at this girl, and I'm like, I was amazed by her. Like, I know it's wrong, but I was, I was just a kid, man. I was like 21 years old. And I see her walking out, and there's this cop on a horse, and she's coming like right at me, and Ab goes, don't move, don't move. Stay." She's coming right at us, and I was like, all right. We were going to hold her ground, and this police officer kind of moved the crowd out of her way, and all of a sudden, I wouldn't move, I wouldn't move, and I will never get this. This guy just takes his horse, and one flick of her wrist, he's a voop, and the horse's head just goes, bam, right in my chest, just. <laughs> Drives me backwards. I couldn't breathe. I was just like, first of all, props to that cop. That was a that was a great move, man. I deserved every bit of it. But I don't know if you've ever been like in a place of like prominence. You know, I remember that night we were at the, at the Oscars watching these people come out the red carpet, and I don't know what happened. There were police officers staggered down this this drive in front of us all along it, and uh, all of a sudden. This police officer was talking to this person down here, and I was just sitting there watching this and we're watching people walk out the red carpet. You know, they're always screaming in yellow for him. And I don't know why I'm getting this in my lesson. <sighs> anyway, I got to finish it now. <laughs> Sorry. Um, the next thing you know, this officer goes up here and he's talking to somebody up there. And so both the officers in front of us had turned and were talking to people on either side of them. And kind of this person's dealing with an issue up by the cars where they're coming out. This person, they're dealing with something, they're having a conversation. But all of a sudden, Ab just grabbed a hold of my shirt and like totally against my will, like I would have done it. We just start... He just grabs me and drags me. We start running. And then, like, you're getting a drug. You finally just start running, too, or you're going to fall down. So we just take off running across the street. We run right down the entry red carpet, like, where they would come through and get their pictures of stadiums on the seats. The whole crowd starts screaming and yelling and cheering for us. The police officers have no idea what we've just done. We are hauling just as fast as we can down this red carpet and duck around these stands and just kind of stand there. It was like... We made it all the way. Like, didn't get caught. Everybody's just screaming and yelling for us, cheering, going nuts. And then all of a sudden we walk back in. There's this after party going on. You know, we kind of slipped inside of this little after party that's next to it looking around. We're not dressed for this at all. People have tuxes and suits on. We're just dressed in street clothes. They had shorts and t-shirts on. You know, we're kind of like looking around see seeing these famous people. And the next thing you know, we walk into you know, the theater. The actual where the Oscars were. And you know, we start walking all the way up to the stage. It's like okay, go big or go home. We're like picking up brochures and stuff. We're going up Stage, up, get ready to go walk up on stage. You got a picture taken with the Oscar. And then finding this one guy working, you're like, "Hey, boneheads! You guys don't belong here, do you?" And we're like. How'd you know? And he goes, "You do not belong in here. What are you two doing in here?" Like and he goes, "How did you get in here?" He goes, "It's a short story, but we're here." They go, "Can we get a picture taken with him?" And he goes, "All right, go ahead. I'll take your picture." He took our picture with me. it was awesome, man. But I've even found yourself like somewhere you're not even sure you you belong there. Like I wonder what what Naboth is saying about this invitation. Like he got invited to the party, man. He got invited. They've seated him at a place of prominence. He probably walks in to, like. This guest dinner thing, like, whew, what's going on? Like, Naboth, up here, come on. One of the things we probably sits to the back, and Jesus tells that story, you know. Get, he gets called to the front of the table, head of the table, and he's up here. Seat in this place of prominence. Everything's like, this is a great night. Scripture unfolds. It says, proclaim a day of fasting. Seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels. Hmm. two scoundrels they are going to give false testimony about you. Two scoundrels that are going to bring you in in front of important people and tell false stories about you until eventually they drag you out and they kill you. Does that story sound familiar? It sounds a whole lot like what happens to Jesus. A couple of scoundrels getting paid for money telling some false stories the results in the death of a noble, righteous man. Hmm. It's a sad deal for him. Sad day for Naboth. This guy did nothing wrong. He's just a good man taking care of his vineyard. Trying to follow the Lord. One of the 7,000 righteous. And they kill him. Death is going to be imminent for this man. So let's now talk about the prophet appearing. We're going to skip through the, the death thing. But I love this. We've all heard this phrase. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Don't know why he goes back to Tishbite. But it calls him Elijah the Tishbite. And every time the word God tells him, go, we know Elijah's M.O. He goes, man. It says, go down to Ahab, king of Israel. He lives in Samaria. He's now. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. So, this crime has been covered up. This crime has been silenced. All the guilty parties have gotten away with it. The laws, they know the laws, the, uh, the letters are all signed, the paperwork's all filed, the man is dead. And they've gotten away with it. But here's what I'd say, man, even in all of our culture, remember this. God knows. God knows. He knows exactly what's been done. He knows exactly how this has played out. And his long suffering is not everlasting. Is not, his long suffering patience is not everlasting. And you know what? Ahab's going to get his. And I would say this for us as well, man. I know some of you guys in this room have probably had moments in your life where someone has done you wrong, and it is easy to want to go seek justice. We want to go get ours. We want to seek revenge for what they did to us, how they did us wrong. In this moment, you're always best when God fights in your behalf. When you don't try to become your defender, when you don't try to pick your battles, when you don't try to, to draw up war lines and gather alliances and all that kind of stuff, it's interesting. Elijah has no idea Naboth is dead. He, probably, I mean, he may not even know who Naboth is. But all of a sudden, he hears a story. It's interesting because it's quick. I mean, this blood hadn't been spilled too long ago because Naboth is in the land taking possession of it as we speak. God knows. I think it's a stark reminder for us. This this word that he uses... Uh, when he says, You have sold yourself, when he gets to him, which says, he says, This is what the Lord says Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Say to him, This is what the Lord says The place of the dogs licked the blood of Naboth. The dogs uh, will lick up your blood. He, he makes this, this phrase down here. Uh, he says, I found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. That word, sold yourself, it, it's an interesting word in, in the Greek. It means like a, a habitual activity. It means like, like you're trafficking your own, yourself in wickedness. Uh, there's another. It can also mean to marry. Uh, so sold yourself can also mean to marry. Uh, like you've ever heard the phrase like, man, you're married to it. It, it may not mean like an actual spouse. It may mean like you're, you're so in with this. You're so tied to this. It's like you're married to it. He used a really interesting phrase, Elijah does. A real, a real um, it's a real twist on words. Because when he says, sold yourself, man, he's basically saying, you married into this. You married into this, man, and you're married to it. Like, not only did you choose an idolatrous woman as a wife, not only did you choose this woman that's not of the people of God, you married into it, but you know what? You sold yourself to it. You're not just married into it physically, you're married to it. You're in it as deep as she is. You're as messed up as she is. It's a harsh word that he's dealing out right now. And God's not unaware. You know, we talked about this. If you get your Bibles, uh, just as a, as a point of encouragement, look at Proverbs chapter 15. Oh, i got to hurry. Proverbs 15, verse 3. Sorry, I'm having a hard time turning there quickly. I think this would be an encouragement to those of us who feel like, man, has God overlooked it? Has God forgotten? I cannot turn a page tonight. Here we go. Proverbs 50, verse 3. One more. Oh, my word. Okay, here we go. It says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. And I would just give this as a moment of encouragement, man, that when you're done wrong, God has not forgotten. So, he previously called Ahab a destroyer, uh, but now he's going to be called my enemy. And Elijah's his enemy, as it mentions here, because, you know, basically Ahab stands in opposition to a God. You know, it's going to go through and describe Jezebel's execution. Uh, you will see that play out. and We're not going to get into that tonight. It plays out. It happens. at 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. You know, basically Ahab's going to be dead. This guy named Yehu's coming into town. She even, like, pretties herself up with makeup and all this kind of stuff. She gets thrown off the wall. She dies. And before they can get down to get a body, dogs have eaten her, just like it says. Um, the prophecies are all fulfilled in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. You know, and I wonder, man, if Ahab, because of this, you know, he says the dogs are going Lick up your blood. I wonder, I kind of picture him jumping every time he hears a dog bark. Like, can you imagine? Like, every time you hear a dog yelping in the back, you're like, whoa, what's, what's about to happen? You know, and, and I think this passage should give us comfort that even though Christians around the world may suffer, God has not forgotten. You know, I was looking on the news, and I don't know how much of it is is true, how much of it I just don't know anymore, man. Uh, you know, what's reality, what's not. But but I saw, you know, th- this thing that had happened, I can't remember, in, in a country in Africa where they're saying that like, almost like 6,000 believers were, were slaughtered. Like 6,000, is that a real number? Did that really happen? You know, we did a, a, a movie you can watch on, it's on Amazon Prime, if you've got Amazon Prime, called Love Cost Everything. Um, you can watch it on there and it's about Christian persecution. And there are more Christians being persecuted today than at any point in time in human history. Uh, Christians are being slaughtered throughout India, being slaughtered you know, throughout the Middle East. And, and I want to remind us, man, that it is God who stands up on our behalf. You know, and I understand there are times where as believers were like, let's go get a gun, and let's go get those people. And I'm like, man, we're so much better off when we allow God to protect His people and God to be Jehovah Sabaoth, for Him to be the God of armies. And sometimes it doesn't make sense. Why? Why does God wait sometimes? Why does He wait why, why does he allow Naboth to live this much longer? Why does he allow Pharaoh to keep going and oppressing people? And it's what you said earlier, man. His ways are not our ways. I don't always understand. But I do trust his reasons. I don't always understand his purposes. And sometimes we look at it, it feels like, as it talks about in Proverbs, man, or David talks about in Psalms, I can't remember what Psalm it is, We he says, man, Lord, sometimes it feels like the wicked flourish. The wicked have it made. You know, but the people who do your way, Lord, it feels like we're oppressed. And believers, sometimes we feel that way. And I think what God consistently reminds us is, you don't know what I'm up to. You don't know what I'm orchestrating. You don't know how this is playing out. You don't know what's coming. And I think the whole time, he wants to breathe him into repentance. I wish I could remember that psalm. Um, um, anyway, I think Psalms, uh, 1 Kings chapter 21 is a preview, and you can read it later on. It's a preview of what you see in, uh, in 2 Thessalonians. Um, oh, man. I need to start marking these before I walk in here. Quit trying to look them all up while I'm standing here. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter, uh, uh, what was it, chapter 1. First mean, Thessalonians, that's why it didn't look right. 1 Thessalonians... No, it is 2nd Thessalonians. Go ahead. 2nd Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says this. It says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I think it's just trusting in Him to do what He says. Payday's coming. And so let's kind of land... We're just going to land this. I'm going to crash land this. Um, three examples of divine severity. Three examples. Number one, obvious example you could look at is Sodom and Gomorrah. God actually wipe out cities because of how wretched they are. That sometimes God just comes in and he says, Enough is enough. I can't take anymore. I think this should always be a caution in our lives. And I don't know where you stand in the spectrum of Arminianism versus Calvinism. Okay, Or if you're like, I have no idea what that is, probably best for you. Um, But I will say, there's a time when God says, enough is enough. And I'm not going to deal with any more of this. You see it in cities, where he just says, Sodom and Gomorrah, I can't handle any more of you. I'm going to wipe you out. Again, you see this happen in Acts chapter 12 with Herod Agrippa. It's not just cities he'll wipe out, but he actually wipes out individuals. Uh, You get this moment with Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12, verses 21 to 23, where he just gets... Because he takes, he takes credit for the good things of God. He takes glory, the rightfully belongs to God. The man, God just wipes out a man named Herod Agrippa. Just wipes him out. He's gone. So he not only will wipe out a city, he only wipe out individuals by saying enough is enough. But God can also lose his patience, not with individuals, not just with cities, but sometimes with entire nations. And you look at what God says in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 11-16, through where he says, man, Judah, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. No more. I've had enough of you. No more. You think of what Paul says when he says, you know, man, Hymenaeus and Alexander, I'm going to hand you over to Satan. I mean, I think we do reach these different points where God says, I've had enough of your disobedience. It stinks in my nostrils. I can't deal with your sin anymore. I mean, as we, as we even look at this as believers I truly believe that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Totally believe that. Height, no depth, no created thing, nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, nothing external can separate us from His love. I truly believe that. But I do believe that there are times where even as believers, we reach this point where our consistent disregard for Him... I always have students go, Man... You know, can I lose my salvation? Kids will ask me that all the time. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you lost your keys? No. You don't misplace your salvation. Like, I, I can't find my salvation today. No. like such a poor choice of words to say, can you lose your salvation? It's just a weird thing. It's just a weird thing to say. I, I don't believe that, that salvation is something you lose like car keys, okay, or lost my wallet. But I do believe, based in Scripture, that it is something you can willingly forfeit and just say, I don't want it anymore. I don't want this anymore. I reject you, God. I reject your ways. I don't want any part of you. You can turn your back on him. You can run from him. And this is exactly what Ahab has done. He's the king of Israel who has turned his back on a living God. It reminds me so many times of, of these texts that you see play out honestly all, all through the book of Hebrews. I mean, they're just, It's everywhere. He says in, in verse you know chapter three, he says, see to brothers, brothers being fellow believers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, which implies that it's possible for a brother to turn away from the living God. Be encouraged another daily as long as it's called the day, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if, if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at the first. You can move on to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise uh, of entering as his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to fall, to fall short of it. I mean, this thing goes through all of it. You can, you know, verse 11 there. You know, let us therefore make every effort to enter the rest so that no one will fall um, uh, falling in the example of disobedience. I mean, it's, it's all all through here. I love this one where it says, It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift. Verse, chapter 6, verse 4. Who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away brought back to repentance because to their loss of crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. I mean, all through the book of Hebrews, this caution is for us as, as believers. Now, some of you are like, Well, man, what about me? Have I done that? I always tell students the same thing. If you're worried about it, no. Okay? If you're concerned about it, you don't need to be flinching. If you've got a heart that says, God, I am worried about where I'm at with you, because you see how bad Ahab is. And when Ahab covers himself with sackcloth, when Ahab humbles himself, God shows mercy you know, this smoldering wick, you will not stuff out, a bruised reed you will not crush. I, I think we gotta remember this this whole thing. We're so quick to quote John three sixteen, you know, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. But don't forget John three seventeen. He comes not to condemn the world, okay? That's not the purpose. But they get to go into what Peter reminds us, you know, that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. You know, I was having this great conversation with a friend going, you know, about this whole issue, going, Man, understand, I think God's deepest desire is reconciliation. His deepest desire is to see glory established. And if people are going to hell, that's not establishing glory for him. He wants all people to come to repentance. He wants everyone to come to him. But here's the honest truth that you see in Ahab's life, you see throughout Hebrews, that if you willfully, continually reject God, whether you know him like Ahab, whether you know him like Hymenaeus and Alexander did, and Paul says, I'm going to turn him over to Satan, whether you, you're like Herod Agrippa and you just know of him in an informal way, you know, whether you're Sodom and Gomorrah or an entire nation like Judah, at some point God does say, Enough is enough. I think God still to this day can say that to individuals like Herod Agrippa's. I think he can still say it to cities. I think he can still say it to nations. And I think it should be a caution in all of our hearts to say, God, what does it mean to take the posture? Honestly, to take the posture of Ahab, caught red-handed to say, I'm sorry, I did wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong, God. Forgive me. I repent. Isn't it crazy that God is merciful to Ahab? Kind of. His family's still going to be cut off. He's merciful to Ahab, but his family, you're like, well, man, that's a mean thing to do to his children. I think God knows exactly how his kids are going to turn out. And God knows exactly what's going to happen right now. And God's going to cut off this whole clan so that it cannot infect Israel anymore. All right, we're over time. So sorry. Elisha, next week, we'll get into it. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christchurch in general, visit us online at cco.church.